So hello and welcome to my Dilarama's Top Picks. I'm Coco Green, armchair critic and aspiring academic with my co-host Abla Kandelof, film programmer, journalist, and researcher. In Top Picks, we discuss marginalization, resistance, and some of the isms in drama, documentary, mystery, and independent films and series. Now in its 10th year, My Die Champions independent film and in using the medium as a platform for underrepresented and oft-ignored voices. You can follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at MyDialerama. And if you like what you do, you like us, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. The short link is mydie.link forward slash Apple. And support us either with a one-time or monthly donation at mydie.link forward slash donate. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at mydie.link forward slash subscribe. Today, we're joined again by Tom Barlow, chair of the Media Fund and host of the show News Clubs UK, to discuss the 2002 documentary series, The Century of the Self. The Adam Curtis documentary analyzes how Freudian theories are used for ideological control by consumer capitalism and governments. We'll talk about the implications of this and the conditions for a true democracy outside of emotional manipulation. But first, before we get into it, we'll start with our top picks of the fortnight. Thanks very much. So, Tom, you had one pick, which is, um, why do I keep calling it Ladland? I don't know. I mean, maybe you think of me, you think of uh, a land of lads. I don't know what it is about me, but... uh, Ladhood. 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 It's set in Yorkshire. It's it's a BBC TV series. Um, It was on a long time ago, or a couple of years ago, but... I found it one of the most accurate depictions of of uh, growing up in England that I've I've actually seen. Uh, to be honest, well, it's no uh, sort of Dickensian or or Edwardian farce. You know what I mean? And it's set in a little shitty town in Yorkshire, mining sort of ex mining village ish like mine. And it's about this weird coming of age. And it's a guy looking back on it, and he does it episode by episode. And you think it's going to be kind of cringy, but it's actually it's actually not. It's it's the most realistic portrait of life that I recognise that's been done in England. And I don't think it was very popular at all. <laughs> like no one saw it, but it's still on the iPlayer. It's called Ladhood, and uh, you know it talks about having that first fight and the entire week. Like you've you put yourself in a situation. You are on the recce, which is like the recreation, the park like mm-hmm. your your town which is just grass right it's just some grass that you are hanging out on with your mates who are all not geeks because you're not geeks because you you dress appropriately but you're also not hard lads or whatever and the hard lads come over and bully you and to take some shit off you or whatever and one of you in this case me uh, as often happen was like not going to have that do you know what i mean not taking the fucking <laughs> you, you let it go so far and then you just give them some shit back and then they're right right i'm going to fuck you up and it's not going to be now it's going to be some other motherfucking <laughs> time and it, uh, when i can tell everyone that i'm going to fuck you up so everyone can watch and you're like shit and then you have to spend all week like uh, you know working out like Shall I feign my own fucking, like, can I, is there any way I can get out of this? Can't tell the pigs. You can't grasp, right? Can't tell the pigs, uh, your parents or the fucking, you know. They tell their fucking older siblings, so they bring, so they're bringing their older brother down to beat you up as well. You know, you've got, like, five of them on, like, you you know, and it, it like, and it goes, so that's, like, episode one is your first fight, or your, not your first one, but, like, 
the first one where it was your fault <laughs> you know you actually stood up for yourself terrifying. and you had to work through it and i was like oh that's more my rite of passage not like oh i fancied a lass and she didn't really like me and then at the school disco uh she made out with my best mate i mean that happens as well but you know that was kind of insignificant constant yeah <laughs> to the constant sort of violence or fear of violence you know <laughs> like the, uh, and uh and trying to learn shit and trying to, you know, stuff like like it's try- the problem solving too, though, right? It's like you're saying is there there was and it was something when I was growing up. I always swore that I would never forget what it was like to be a kid, and now of course I've forgotten. But there was this whole other world. What you know, what you're talking about in your stories, like there was this whole other world of kids that you were well aware that you couldn't involve adults and that you had to find some way to figure it out. And yeah. it's that aspect of that sort of problem solving, the fact that, yeah. you know, the dynamics with your friends and with other children, all these unspoken rules about yeah. how you had to navigate if you wanted to be included. Because I've always said, like, the, the, the difference, I think, between kind of bullying and the sort of, uh, you know, the, the way you talk about your friends and stuff is like it's worse to be excluded. And then but to be included can sometimes be a painful process. And then also, how do you navigate that? And so yeah, that's what, no yeah. one tells you, right? No. Like there's no guide. <laughs> and none of the American sort of coming of age things that I watched, I, I could they didn't help me in any way. So you'd watch them, you watch them like <laughs> even like American Pie. Like almost like could this be a guide? Could this tell me something about what the fuck I'm supposed to do about this? <laughs> okay, thank you. Asakura, do you have one? Yes, so I have one. So Antebellum. Yes. So it's a 2020 American thriller film written by written and directed by Gerard Bush and Christopher Renz in their featured directorial debuts. For those that don't know, Annabella means this before the Civil War. And yes, the Civil War was about slavery. I know half of Americans don't think so, but half of the Civil, <laughs> the Civil War was about slavery. So the term is referring to the period of the height of American slavery. So the, the synopsis on the website reads... Successful author Veronica Henley, played by Janelle Monet, the singer, finds herself trapped in a horrifying reality that forces her to confront the past, present, and future before it's too late. Um, so I had some issues with this, and sorry, you guys. You know what I'm reading? <laughs> Give me a second. You'll have to edit um, because I was reading from the draft and not the final. Speaking. I mean, you points. improvised okay. your critique the other day. So. I did improvise, but you know, you, you got to make it succinct because you know, I ramble. So I, we got to, we got to keep it succinct. So there's just really a couple points I want to make. Okay. So you can pick it up from here, Abla. So my synopsis is this, basically black people are kidnapped and forced to reenact the brutality of slavery because the hundred or so white people who participate in this living slavery monument are fearful of black equality. They're paying money to pretend to be an overseer or a Confederate soldier because they like seeing black people differential, beaten, murdered, and raped. But bizarrely, they don't like making money because for these people, unlike everyone else, slavery isn't about capitalism. So when I watched the trailer, so someone suggested that I watch this. He said that his sister introduced him to the film. He liked it so much. He watched it twice. It was amazing. And he recommended that I watched it. And I I didn't, I didn't get it. So... <clears throat> I hadn't heard of the film, even though it just came out this year. And when I watched the trailer, I thought one of two things. Either the setting was an alternate universe in which there were slave and free states in the present day, or it's a time travel film. 
So visually, I liked it. The five minute scene is the best part of the film, really. So there's about five minutes. It plays as a silent film, really. So there's five minutes of that. And it starts with this little white girl coming up through a field. You know, the camera's following her. And then we see an antebellum mansion as a white woman descends a white staircase to greet the little girl. Then the camera pans and we see Confederate soldiers. Then we see the slavery, okay? So it starts, the horror begins there. So the first words spoken are by a black woman who's been chased down and a rope has been put around her neck and she pants, kill me, to the white man who's got the rope around her neck and he's lording over her and he agrees and he shoots her. So that's a big problem there, right? That doesn't really work because we all know that chattel slaves were too valuable to go around just being murdered, okay? They're, they're not gonna do that. It's like the value of a house. You just don't go around doing that. And like in Black Panther, that's what I was thinking about. I was reminded of that film because death was seen as heroic and that was seen as liberatory, right? So even the character Killmonger, who's from Oakland, okay? So he's from slaves, meaning those who lived through the Middle Passage, they survived slavery. And when he asked to be killed, he says that, he wants to join his ancestors who jumped overboard. Your ancestors didn't jump overboard. Otherwise you would not have lived, right? Because you can't be descended from slavery if they jumped overboard. So it's like, what about those who endured and survived? I think it's a big problem. So as I mentioned before in my review of Madam C.J. Walker bio self-made, also on Netflix, that I'm in awe of the generations of freedmen who are the direct descendants of slaves, right? So they were either born into slavery as children, their parents were slaves, that they could survive and still have aspirations to build churches and schools and businesses. And I can't even, I don't have the words to express my admiration and my gratitude for these people. And yet we don't see that sort of fearlessness and resistance and hope in the face of slavery. Instead, resistance is death. So combined with this are, it's like slavery is just um, the physical part of it. They, there can't be a discussion of the economics and the materialism of slavery. And so the film can't really come to terms with slavery, even though it alleges to be a film about slavery, because you have to recognize slavery as capitalism. You have to recognize it as being about a profit-making enterprise like held in the bodies of the people, right? And instead, this film just chooses to focus on the sadist tendencies of slaveholders who enjoy black suffering. So here, let me state this often ignored analysis that slaves, you know, in 1860, you know, we're talking about the start of the Civil War here. Slaves were the largest financial asset in the U.S., worth more than all the manufacturing and railroads combined. So we're talking about the 4 million black bodies. That is their value. They are the greatest asset. It's not just about wanting to torture people and watch them suffer. So for example, in the first scene they have of cotton picking, picking right? So they've got these kidnapped black people. They have to act as, they're, as if they're slaves and they're not breaking a sweat. So they want them to pretend like they're picking cotton. So they have to enact the part of slavery where they're just beaten and raped, but not actually do any work. So they're not generating a profit. It, it just made absolutely no sense. And we're talking 40 or 50 people here. So we're to believe that we have this 
group of sadistic white millionaires, and I'm arguing they would have to be a millionaire group to run a plantation that (laughs) no one generates money to sustain, right? They also have a club of people who are coming to pay to participate in reenactment. They have to pay to kidnap all these people and hold them there all because they enjoy torture and murder. And I think it's because it's trying to teach us about the psychology of white racists and it fails at that. I think it's absurd to think that you can try to get into the mind and that's supposed to give us some insight into their descendants of those ideas, which are white racist. It, it's just, I, I didn't get it. And I think also it segues nicely into our discussion of the century of the self, because I think we're in a place where we can't really use an economic lens to understand slavery and its after effects. And we also then can't understand the need for reparations because we're too focused on the individual. It's about individual psychology, their action, their inaction, their experience, their motivation, their feelings, their inner desires. We can't understand then if we use that individualistic lens, group interest and social reproduction and social inequality. And as a result, I think if we take it at face value, if we don't critique this film, then I think the underlying message can be bad for our politics. Mm -hmm. So it makes slavery psychological. And if slavery is psychological, emotional and experiential, then freedom will be too. And then if we're talking about, you know, black equality or black, liberation, that becomes an intellectual exercise alone. And I think there is the intellectual component to it, but that will be meaningless unless there is a movement for economic justice and reparations and the redistribution of wealth. So in summary, I don't think the film works as a slavery film or a suspense story because like I said, there's no, it doesn't really give us any insight into slavery. It's not really a suspense story because quickly we learn that she's just been kidnapped and we're like, okay. And I think for the film to work, because there was potential there and I thought it was an interesting idea, it should have either taken place in an alternate universe Mm -hmm. where you still have slavery, right? So she's kidnapped and forced to work in a slave state. That could have been an interesting idea. Or she should be time traveling like in the Octavia Butler book where she time travels back to her ancestors right who were slaves both could have been interesting so I'm not sure what they were doing here and it also to depict you know to make slavery psychological that's why they had to have these sort of psychopathic slave owners but then in turn you have slaves that just accept their fate because they're mentally beaten down and really Slave owners are an example of unbridled capitalists and people want to disassociate with that to say, oh, I could never be that person. But you absolutely could and you absolutely are because you're fine (laughs) to let that go on as long as you don't have to see it or be a part of it. Really, like most people in the U.S. at the time. And it also hides the fact that slaves did resist and they more importantly, they were all part of an institution of slavery. So in this film. I should clarify that no one tried to escape. So they have hoes in their hands, right? As they're pretending to do slave labor, pretending, hint on the pretending. So those are weapons, right? They have hoes. These are heavy tools they have in their hand. They're not shackled. They're free to move around. No one is watching over them individually at night. So they spend lots of time unsupervised. So if you kidnap a black activist in 2020, you're going to have to keep them constantly incapacitated. We know only a small percentage of slaves ran away. I get that. And 
there it's though important to note there were many reasons for that they didn't know the terrain they had family on the plantation that kept kept them there who was going to assist them and help them and most importantly you had an entire government and militia that ensured your forced servitude in this film none of those things existed they weren't chained up they weren't raised as slaves and actually what was hinted at in the film is that they were kidnapped because they were uppity educated outspoken activists so if you weren't chained up, you weren't raised being a slave yourself, it's hard to believe that you're not going to resist and that you would just, it'd be simply enough to take you to a field and you are then going to be reduced to act out a slave caricature. Or like in Get Out, for example, they'd been brainwashed or hypnotized or whatever. It's, something's going to have to happen or they could just kept them chained up all the time, but you can't have them just walking around and say, oh, nothing I can do. What? Like on the plus, I'm glad. Compliment sandwich. Huh? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't start with anything positive. So no, it's not a compliment sandwich. Um, but I, on the plus side, I'm glad that they had the white woman in the film who was in the thick of it. So she wasn't a bystander. She wasn't, you know, because the way the film was going, I almost expected them to do that usual thing where they have an abused white woman that finds a common enemy with the black people. So I'm glad they didn't go that route. Um, and visually, it was flawless, I must say. Um, it was beautifully shot, beautiful people. That's always enticing, right? To watch beautiful people doing beautiful things, you know, <laughs> not not in the slave scenes, but in the scenes where, where she wasn't a slave, right? Like, I think that's the rabbit, and we're going to talk about this, you know, we, when, you know, in our discussion of the century of the self, but this is the problem when you try to do things from an, a psychological lens with no context, right? Like people could have, you're going to have a different mentality depending on your material conditions and the context. So there's a reason why a house slave in 1860 didn't murder her master versus now you could do that if you were kidnapped mm -hmm. and you certainly would. It would not be enough to have one single threat of violence. You were one person, especially there's a group of you. And there was a scene even, you know, when they were, there are a few scenes of them pretending again to pick cotton. One overseer on a horse with a gun and there's a group of you all with weapons in your hand. You would have hit the horse in the eye. I mean, just, you just would not being chained up. So they there had to be more to to show why they would act that way versus focusing on the psychology and emotional life of a slave. And I think maybe that uh, perhaps that can be explored, but I don't think this was an appropriate uh, way to do it with this kind of film. And it's almost like you're t peddling on bl black pain when you can tell a you can tell that story, I think, in another mm -hmm. way that gives uh, dignity to people. And you don't have to create also these sort of, uh, and also I think that helps uh, di white people distance themselves from the responsibility of inheriting all that slave money because they're like, oh, well, I would never rape a black woman or I would never, you know, harm black children or I would, you know, if, if that's then your depiction of a slave owner. When, of course, as we know, slave owners didn't have that mentality at all. They're like, what are you talking about? I love them. If they're sick, I go down and I nurse them. Don't you know this woman raised my children? Don't you know we care about them? They are our family. It's just, it was all wrong. And, and that's because I think they're trying to rely on this psychological slavery, but it doesn't work outside of a slavery context. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, certainly. And, and it's, as you say, it ties into essentially the self because you're letting institutions in, and society essentially, like as in human society, be off the hook. It becomes this individualistic thing. You know, right. That, and that's, and what that's exactly. yeah, yeah. And I, and I totally agree. And, and I think, you know, that's that's a problem with our culture, which essentially the self, you know, explicitly explores. And I think, you know, you well, I find what you said very convincing and, and kind of warns me off the film, but part of me now wants to watch oh, it. Oh, I just definitely to you watch should it. watch it. Yeah, you should watch <laughs> it. it. And then, I, yeah, you, you absolutely should. Well, Tom, how about you segue uh, very elegantly and smoothly into Century of the Self? <laughs> well, um, I mean, the work was already done, actually, <laughs> there in, in, in how to segue, but because Century of the Self... I'm going to make a bold claim to open up with straight away and uh, I'm quite happy for it to be shot down. But I genuinely think uh, the documentary series is one of the most important of the 21st century. Like, uh, and I think... Ooh, that is a bold claim. I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> yeah, it's a big one. It's a big one. Now, look, that's partially based on personal experience. It's an extreme motivating factor for me in, in my development as a person. And in fact, obviously, I work in the media fund. You can say 20 years later, nearly 20 years later, um, I founded an institution to tackle exactly some of the problems that are outlined in Century the Self. So it had a great big personal effect on me. But I think also... There are some flaws, and I'd like to talk about them, and they, they they relate to economics and institutions, actually, because the focus is so heavily on psychology in in this. But it is a description of 100 years from Freud onwards of asking society to centre itself around not society, not a community of any form, the church, nation, race, religion, or, or, or any... Or, socialist international or any kind of idea of community but to focus solely solely on the self and i think you know the biggest lie of the 20th century um is that all problems and solutions are individual mm -hmm. that and and you know these trace back to laissez-faire capitalism of the victorian era in britain and stuff like that and and the early period of the enlightenment but it's hammered home, especially in the late 20th century, by Thatcher and Reagan's revolutions, or what Thatcher and Reagan represent. This charts how that began, because we recognise Thatcher and Reagan. We never heard of before this documentary who Eddie Bernays is, or why the public relations industry exists, and it used to be called the propaganda industry, and how that, you know, not only created politics and ways of managing society, but also then led into corporate. Um, uh, ways of fulfilling on um irrational needs and desire or irrational desires rather than rational needs and it all comes from the 1920s when after the first world war eddie bernays who's a nephew of freud founds the public relations industry and, and starts selling himself to corporations to say you know how can we deal with this problem that we're, we're going to reach a point where we oversupply um, where we, we create more than what people need because at the moment people only buy things that they need. And he says, well, how can we make them want what they don't need? It's to appeal to their rational desires. And then in doing working that out, Eddie Bernays also creates a philosophy that, that Freud follows and many other people follow in his footsteps, which is that human beings are uncontrollable beasts. They are below the very thin surface 
disgusting animals that need to be controlled and that democracy under no circumstances can work or be allowed to happen because democracy would allow the mob to take control and, and um, unleash its savage and libidinous desires uh, upon each other and uh, end in disaster. And so what they come up with is a way of managing society, this elitism, this, this uh, you know, there's a, there's this very brief explosion of the the increase of the franchise and this move towards democracy in the 20th century. And it's very quickly shut down by the elite. And in some circles, obviously, this is where the century itself misses out. That's because it's economically required that corporations and states need to maintain control. But for people like Eddie Bernays and Freud and the people who follow him, it's a psychological need. There is a need to control the masses and that you need an enlightened platonic philosopher kings right that maintain the facade of democracy you go and vote but actually by controlling your unconscious desires and feeding them or yeah well in eddie bernays's case controlling them and in the thatcherite and reagan's case by feeding them by with consumption with stuff even the most individualistic altruistic outward-looking, socially conscious person can be made to fill up their lives with mm -hmm. guff that turns them mm -hmm. inwards rather than outwards and turns them into self-obsessed consuming machines rather than producers, creators, or, or just human beings with a soul and a purpose. And so this documentary series charts that and goes into great historical detail on many different movements, one of which we talked about in the last episode we were on together, which is the the sort of rise of the new left and the hippies. And, and they discuss in it how they clashed with the power and they were against state and corporate control of society. And in getting smashed, you know, Black Panthers being a vanguard of this, but in the US, but also the Students for Democratic Society, the uh, the counterintelligence program that the Nixon administration undertook that assassinated left-wing leaders, the Weather Underground, all of them got crushed. Left-wing resistance got crushed yeah. in the 70s. So yeah. people turned inwards. They said, well, actually, what we can do is instead of creating a utopia by resisting power and oppression, we'll create it in ourselves. And then marketing executives and and, and, and corporations said, we were interested in these people because you can't define them by social class, by age, location. They're defined purely by this desire to fulfill themselves. So how can we get in on that action? And we do it by pumping out crap that they don't need, but they feel like they do because it enables them to feel like they're expressing who they individually are. And they get deep into our psychologies. And that is, of course, the world that I'm born into and brought up into. And I, I remember an age when you didn't used to see certainly uh, global chain stores everywhere. A every town or village used to have different local stores. You didn't see uh, global advertising. We were raised with the BBC. You know, I wasn't allowed to watch the ITV because it had advertising. Advertising was frowned upon. Whereas the society now, as was predicted, everyone is a brand. Everybody who wants to create anything has to sell themselves. And we've so we've gone completely inverse from something where my mom, who was an actress, said proper actors never did advertising. Oh, really? Right. Oh. They, they, they never in, in Britain, it was frowned upon. So you had a different section of, of, of the acting uh, core that would do adverts and stuff like that. And you'd never you couldn't do a play or TV if you did adverts. That wasn't done. Whereas. So it was really frowned upon as an activity. 
to now everyone is an advert for themselves constantly, all day, every day. Century itself, even though it was made in 2002, charts that, why that's occurred. And that's why I suggested it's one of the most important documentary series of the 21st century. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd actually agree with that. Sakura, you said it was a bit of a forceful claim. Um, Oh, well, no, I was just surprised that he made it. But I absolutely think that it does give a sort of history lesson. Like that was one of my takeaways. So, I mean, for me, I, I have wanted to review it for ages. I never thought it would happen in this way. But I think it helps us to see how people see themselves and their place in the world and it also gives context to not only understand like 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 Tom was saying like a history lesson but it explains the kind of resistance you get when you have political discussions with Mm -hmm. people so I also think that the film gives a useful definition of identity politics so um, in thinking about my own project you know abandoned soon to be picked (laughs) up again project on the black British middle class and by middle class I mean black British university educated professional classes. Um, It helps you to think about what I kind of observed with their schizophrenia. So something like really key that the documentary has is this appeal of a consumerist democracy, right? So it's like people have concern for themselves, not group interests and corporations are seen as being able to meet your needs better than the government can. And it's about you meeting your potential. I mean, it's something that Oprah does, right? Like that was her whole thing in the 90s and 2000s. It's all about your own personal development. You reaching the best of your abilities. Um, And then the conversation then doesn't become about power, but about recognition. So we want to see ourselves and our desires reflected back. And in my research project um, for the Black British professional university educated classes, they, what I described to be like very schizophrenic, right? Because on the one hand, they would Mm -hmm. say in depth, they would talk about institutional racism, their own experiences with discrimination, both in school and the workplace. Then on the other hand, in that same breath, they would blame black people for their own oppression, saying that we don't stick together. We don't support each other. We don't know our true culture, which is African. Yes, the continent, (laughs) nothing specific. We have a slave mentality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, Franklin Frazier and Nathan Hare talked about this as a form of double consciousness. And that's when you see yourself through the eyes of the oppressor and you see yourself through your own eyes as an oppressed person. And these are opposing positions and ideas and perspectives. And you have them and you switch back and forth because of what it results from you being an oppressed person, right? That's the mentality you developed. And it's often expressed visually as wearing a mask. Even Fanon, his book, Black Skin, White Mask, talks about this same dynamic. And the mask, it's you hide from your own oppression and the spirit of resistance and wanting to fight back. And then also a mask, how you can pretend to be something else. And in the case of Franklin Frazier, who talks about the black middle class, mm-hmm. it's you're pretending to, you mimic the oppressed, the oppressor class. You mimic their clothes, you mimic their customs, you mimic their values, right? And I think in my research, what I experienced, and it's just as the film described, this kind of backing away from having a group, this desperation to be an individual. Because if you want 
right? Black freedom struggle, black liberation. You have to have a black group. It demands that, right? So in the individualist framework we're given that the film comprehensively, right, shows the path, the history of, you can't have a group. You can only have individuals. So if you're a black British professional, what are your options then to explain the social position of the group? And I found that they rationalized it using the language of individualism. So you think that your power as an individual is represented as the power of the group. So your personal achievements can stand in for progress or racial uplift or black people doing better. And it's how my respondents, that's the language they use. That's what they talked about. So they could minimize racism and their powerlessness to do anything about it, right? Because that requires institutional change by talking about their own individual efforts. And don't get me wrong, they're admirable, but it is just an expression of that, of the individualism and trying to find a way to rationalize it and feel better about it. So in the name of promoting black culture or learning or us doing better, that is how they were able to do it. And part of the language, you know, as I said before, is about, oh, black people doesn't want to help each other. So that's what they did. They would talk about how they helped other black people or how they got, um, you know, did all these things in the black groups, but it was all a result of the powerlessness. And just as in this film, um, as you were talking about, Tom, how the, uh, you know, there was that scene where the man who he was part of this sort of activist anti or anti-war activism. And because they felt so powerless and said, that's a system we can't change. They were not expecting that sort of pushback from the government and the might of the U.S. government <laughs> military power. They said, we don't have power to do that, but you know what we can change is ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I found that the black professional classes do the exact same thing. And this film really helped me to see that. And so, and I, you know, I, I saw this film on the recommendation of a friend probably maybe four years ago. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what they're doing. So that is their retreat, right? So their retreat from, because that's the thing, you can engage and we all know the various histories of various activists Mm -hmm. from various social movements. It will kill you. If it doesn't take your mental health, it will take your personal relationships. It will take your personal time. It'll take your life. It'll take Mm -hmm. it all. And even then you're only partway down the road because it's really, you know, you're talking about many generations of the struggle, what you're going to be a part of. And so they retreat from that And specifically thinking about, you know, they're retreating from, you know, the legacy of UK slavery through colonialism and post-colonialism. And so what they're saying, I would argue, is that we can't do this political fight and win. So I'll fight through my own individual efforts or through these community-based organizations. And I'm not, you know, to be clear, like, I think these are great people. Some of them were my friends, but I think this is the reality of what it's done to their politics. It is so damaging to the politics. And I think this film really helps us to understand how we got here and why people then put so much effort in cultivating the self. So, yeah, I totally agree. Did you watch Abla? I did, yeah. I watched it um, on holiday. It's a nice light watch. For me, I, I, told, I mean, I'm just going to echo what you said, but I found it so important for it because it connected the dots between so many things that I felt uneasy about um, in terms of gender, I, um, not gender, but identity politics, liberal politics, um, the growth of individualism, all these strands that for me were had somewhere corrupted um the left or progressive politics 
and it was a way to kind of make sense of all of these and co connect the dots between all of them and for me what I I especially found eye-opening was the bit where, that you uh, talked about where we see the um, the evolution of the hippie movement to I in that I found the answer to why I felt uncomfortable with a lot of um, culture and politics that had come out of the beatniks and the, the hippie movement and so on where I felt like it was very much about about the self and that you you lost a lot of the structural critique of an entire system in that and it felt very self-absorbed as well and I I couldn't quite articulate why like um put my teeth on edge I saw it as an impediment to a much more productive um class-based and systemic uh, fight for equal rights you know what it also reminded me of have you ever seen that film from the 80s uh Keenan Ivory Wayne's I'm gonna get you Seca no no well there, there's a scene and it, it's hilarious you have to see that uh film but I, I like Keenan Ivory Wayne's films wait what in the 80s shame. yeah in the 80s were they even so born then film. Keenan Ivory Wayans, are you? He's like sixty. Oh. He's got his. It's like his kids are a little younger than me, so his kids are in their late twenties, early thirties. Oh, I'm thinking of someone and else. He then. has a bunch of kids. They all have a bunch of kids, <laughs> which is good. You know, that's what you're supposed to do. Uh, but there's this scene. So, in one of the scenes, he he's trying to go, and I forget what he was fighting. He was fighting someone. It was it was kind of like a take on black exploitation films. A bit, was having a bit of fun with it, and. Of course, you know, you're trying to fight the bad guy, get the girl, that old chestnut. Any action film, right? We all know the the deal. So he goes to this guy who was a black revolutionary because he needs his help fighting. And he's talking all this language. He's like, okay, so we're going to go fight. And he's like, oh, wait, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. So it's like he was fine with all the intellectualism. And I think that's a place where the left has gone, in my opinion. Yeah. They've got all the theory. They're fine to do the intellectual stuff. But when it comes down to it and that book the sellout also references it it's about not about building up even an organization to carry on the fight or have some sort of political struggle it's about their career at the end of the day mm -hmm. yeah and we can talk about the left and i certainly want to talk about some of the institutional things but yes. what what's interesting about this documentary is this is part of all of our lives all the time whether you were left wing or not whether you were interested in politics no, exactly. or not is that your life you know you know, there were eras when there were style tribes or that you belong to things or communities. And what happened was is they did the, it shows how they did these deep, constantly evolving psychological testing on the majority of the population, who, by the way, at certain points were so willing, you know, we're, we're so willing, like they were talking about how they did political um uh, for Reagan, they did political questionnaires for people. But instead of asking yeah. them, you know, policies do you like? They said, how do you feel? What do you think about this? What are your hopes for your life? Mm -hmm. You know, and people would write back and say, oh, have you got any more questions? <laughs> they just, we wanted to tell people about ourselves. And in doing so, we gave this elite, um, both political and business elites, the, the, this window into who we are, our unconscious desires, and, and this was hammered in throughout throughout the documentary. Right, but are you saying that we have that void because we haven't been able to cultivate the relationships where we'd have the space to do that through clubs and organizations and churches I, and things like that? I think the the specific crusade in the eighties, you know, and you see it in the twenties. Uh, you see, 
you see in the 20s and the 50s the rise of mass consumerism right which are based on like let's get industry up and producing loads of stuff for loads of people and we we you know we want to forget about the war we want to fill our lives with with things like and that and that's a sort of almost more understandable consumerism but it it's still based around the state and around big you know big for this production, big machinery and stuff like that. What happens in the 80s, and here's where I say the, the century itself misses economic uh, analysis, or it mentions it's a bit, is that we start switching. There's this massive industrial decline. So in Britain, what you see is the end ending of mines and factories and, um, and warehouse work where there was large workspaces where people were organised together. And there'd been a century or maybe a century and a half in Britain, you know, maybe two centuries of people being able to organize in those places because we're all together in one place. And so that's how you can react to it and keep a sense of community. So you're destroying in one hand the productive element where we're all together. And then second hand, you're you're getting this stuff where we don't produce Model T cars for 10 million people. We produce, you know, you know a few thousand of one type of thing you know we're going to get you surfboards and skateboards and skydiving and like and they psychologically class people on the different kinds of classes they might be they might be physical extremists experientialists people who are IMEs who like to explore different things and go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing and they would come up with products to fill this life and as these these unconscious desires and what I'm saying is it's hard to organize in a world where we lost the organizational knowledge of previous generations, it's hard to organize in a world where we don't geographically spend a lot of time together. But it's even harder to organize in a world where everyone's unconscious desires are being titillated at all points, all of us. And of course, Facebook and, and, and Instagram and, and social media as we know it are that on steroids the adverts are even more personal now they're they're looking into your soul the things you don't know about yourself and never even considered that you want also they're listening to you right how many times have you got an advert come up five minutes after a phone conversation about your mates having dogs and it's dog food or whatever it is you know they're listening into everything they're doing psychological testing on everything so we see it now in our everyday lives but we were seeing it then and what was why i make this claim is because this was in 2002 like this was just before the iraq war the invasion of Iraq, rather. And for me, it was on the BBC. I couldn't believe on a Sunday night on the BBC I would see something like this. I, like, I spent a couple of years trying to find it on VHS. My mum eventually helped me get it from the producer, Adam Curtis. I was like, I can't believe this is on the BBC. This is, you know, this is nowadays, this would be produced by some niche wingnut on YouTube. <laughs> right? Like, you, you watch it and with all the crazy editing and the you know there's there's a lot of artistry to to the making yeah. of it as well because essentially it's a video essay a, a, a narration over lots of images that that illustrate what he's talking about but maybe not the most obvious b-roll yeah you absolutely wonder even at the end if you don't even watch through the credits you don't even see where he's going with that it's just like you wait like what's he doing there yeah um, yeah no lots visually of, lots it's of... astounding you know and uh, and so because of this the bbc have had to keep letting him make documentaries though they very swiftly took it off tv and solely onto the iplayer like oh, i didn't know about only. that yeah it's internet only now like they don't broadcast any of his documentaries they broadcast the first three and then what happened who knows but i i just thought it's it's an amazing thing and it tells us psychologically like you might know economically what's changed with the world, but it tells us psychologically that there's there's a class of people who are interested in looking into what we are 
underneath everything that we say we are and 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 manipulating that to control us for their benefit that's an extraordinary claim and then to prove it over four hours that there is this elite it does exist and this is how it's done it this is the history and the key players i think that's an extraordinary piece of work work and to do it in the way that it does you know really makes it i think something that everyone should watch and if they don't watch it all of it episode three is the one that i think most relates to right now because it's about the the hippies and the political movements that get crushed and stuff like that Well, you know, something that you said that I think was also really important um, was what the the movement towards psychology has done to make all of the economic and structural stuff invisible. Like it's so invisible now you can't even talk about it. Or when you do, like I was saying with the uh, antebellum, it has to be some grotesque, sadistic, crazy, sociopathic person. We don't even know how to do it. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, because we have to make oppression seem like an outlier, like a bad apple, mm-hmm. like some lunatic or psychopath. Not that we are enact it all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Like even me, like, you know, I'm like, my clothes are made by child slaves in India. The cotton comes from them. You know, the oil that makes the plastics in my trainers comes from bombed out war zones in Iraq. The coltan in my phone comes from child soldiers and child slaves in the Congo, mm-hmm. right? Like we live mm-hmm. surrounded by the blood and horror of other people's lives. And so that's the banality of evil. It's always been there, the banality of oppression rather than the evil. I guess evil's a moralistic term, but oppression is quantifiably yeah. provable. And it's occurring all the time and it's hidden. You know, we, yeah. we, we, we can't, and, and so to explain it, when we do come across it, we do, we do this with films about child soldiers. I think Idris Elba was in one, wasn't he? And he said, you know, and there's a particular warlord and the warlord's the bad guy. It's not yeah. a system that says we must take everything and yeah. give it to, like Aldous Huxley's, Huxley's sort of uh, soma drug. We we must suck everything out of the earth and kill and and enslave millions and destroy everything we touch in order to fulfil the unconscious desires of a populace who didn't even ask to be mollified with this tosh. You know, mm-hmm. that's what this documentary sort of points out to us is that we, we're we getting stuff we never asked for and we're getting, we're, but we want it. Yeah. And, and, want and it. they know we want it. So they give it us to shut us up so that we don't organize against them. Because guess what? You know, state and corporate power, whilst it is, it is extremely powerful, it's not omniscient. It, mm. it, it, it can be defeated. It can be changed. We can move beyond it. And that is a lesson that we we mustn't learn. You know, that is the kind of individual we shouldn't become. And the reason this conversation, by the way, came around between myself and Avila was, I was talking about how I'm an anarchist and uh, and a libertarian, and that term has been twisted by American culture specifically, because there's this idea of hyper individualism, whereas I would be maybe a libertarian social yeah can you can you give a definition of that because we definitely want to touch on that and i had some questions so can you talk about that well as an anarchist or as, as a libertarian or, or both uh the libertarianism well yeah how do you not see a clash between the two terms well look anarchists would not ever want to be associated with free market fundamentalists that call themselves libertarians let's be clear some of them call themselves anarcho-capitalists um it can't it can't exist a libertarian believes in the freedom 
of the individual. And that's where this is really interesting. I believe in the freedom of the individual. I believe the individual can only be free in a society where we all have equal control of our own, over our own lives. And the vehicle for that is democracy. Democracy is the only thing. You cannot have a free market society, capitalist society, where you're free. Because even the capitalist isn't free. They're freer. They can do things that I can't do. But they are still trapped within a system that uh, seeks profit above all else. And they, if they deviate from that path of seeking profit, they will be punished for it. So you're not living in a free society. And of course, you cannot have democracy and capitalism. And that's what's interesting again about this film is how they, during the 70s specifically, they tried to tie capitalism and democracy together. You can't have both. You can't live in a democratic society where the elite have more power. You know, a small number of people have extraordinary power over your lives. Mm -hmm. so de democracy is the only vehicle. Now, it's not a flawless vehicle. We could make some absolute cock-ups, but they would be our cock-ups. And it's the only vehicle that has a possibility to deliver freedom. And that's, you see, I think where the left often goes wrong. It makes moralistic arguments. Oh, we should look after the poor. Or it makes economic arguments. Oh, we should all live equally economically. And people are afraid of equality economically. They don't like that. There's an element to which we want to lessen inequality, but we don't want to economically destroy it totally. And that's a weird situation. It's something that Blair and Clinton played on. And that is brought up in the film as well. What we can say to people, I want to be free. And people do want to be free. And I want to be free. And I say to them, well, the only way we can live in a free society, the only way we can be true libertarians, uh, and libertarian just means someone who believes in freedom, right? It's just a Latin word for freedom, um, is the only way I can have control over my own life is if I live in a democratic society, that I can be involved in the decisions that affect me. So I, in some way, control, have some control over, say, water, gas, electricity, uh, broadband, all these public goods that I need for my life to exist. You know, they can't be owned by private organizations or individuals that solely look, seek to make profit from them. They have to be publicly owned. Like, you know, so, so I, you know, there's a way of describing anarchists, certainly of my ilk, because libertarian socialists, and that what, what is, uh, is what Chomsky would call himself, and there's different branches of anarchism and they're not like socialism named after dead white dudes they're named after how you would practice it mm -hmm. you know anarcho-syndicalism is about work and uh, you know ecological anarchism is about the environment and our feminism is about you know equality between the genders and these are really like your priorities about how do you create a world because anarchy means anarchy and arc an archon was a ruler an archon means without rulers mm -hmm. and we want to live in a world without rulers that doesn't mean without leaders, without change, without, um, you know, and certainly not without organization. Okay, yeah, because that was going to be my, well, my exactly, question, actually. Yeah. We're all around that. Those are all my questions around um, institutions, because I'm, I'm a strong believer in institutions, right? Institutions. Um, and then I was going to bring up the tyranny of structurelessness, but it sounds like I don't have to. Um, but what I will, but what I will say. Tyranny of structurelessness comes out of that new left. It comes out of the 70s Greenham Common feminist movements that sort of idealized Native Americans and the tyranny of structuralists for the audience who, who won't not maybe have heard of this. It's an essay by Joe Freeman. who talks about these kind of like hippie-ish horizontalist movements that are, are often associated with anarchism. And certainly I was involved in those in the environmental movement, even in the noughties. And they collapse around the Occupy movement, because what you realize is these can't scale up. And also they're incredibly undemocratic because 
what yeah. you have is is uh, movements that are run by volunteers, people who have time and energy and skills to run a movement. They're not uh, organisations that are actually democratic. You can't sack someone in a, a horizontalist, hippie-ish group. You can't sack the leader. The leader is the one who has the most time and, like me usually, is the most gobby. Right, you cut like and it, oh, the strongest personalities are always in charge, and then you just have people who are scared <laughs> to stand up to the strongest personalities. Yeah, 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 it's it's movements based around personalities, and of course, it comes out of this rise of individualism. This new, the, it's literally called as a technical term, the new left. Right, yeah. this let's get rid of Leninism. That was bullshit. Let's get rid of Keynesianism and social democracy. That was bullshit. Because what you know, but we don't want to be like the right we're nicer people you know so you know what what you have with leninism and, and and keynesianism is like the state taking control of economic public life taking over resources but it was the state it wasn't people so you democratically even though the state in britain for instance nationalized everything national rail blah 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 you know coal steel everything was owned by the government but it was owned by the government not by the people they weren't democratic institutions, so we didn't really have any control. You get to elect in and out who who controls them, and by the way, for a long time that was conservatives. They had at least fifteen years of running those things. They weren't they weren't opposed to it because it's essentially an elitist structure. It's not a structure where you're free; mm -hmm. you have public control over something. We need those institutions need to be publicly owned, like say in Ethiopia, fifty percent of assets uh, of their nation's assets are owned cooperatively in co-ops. In mutually, you know, and so as an anarchist, you know, I believe in institutions that are democratic. I don't believe in the state because ultimately the state is a violent institution. Now, that doesn't mean I'm against the welfare state. And again, this is where these US right wing libertarians who are really free market fundamentalists, they're against the welfare state. They see it as a some kind of, I don't know, some Anne Rand's bullshit about it. I know, I was thinking it sounded like an anarchist, and that's why they want to go to their island. No more welfare, <laughs> except for us. <laughs> they all are. They're, like, it, you know, you can't live in a free market society. It would be horrendous. Like, imagine an actual free market, like a market town with a market. And instead of saying there's rules to this market, and you're only allowed to sell goods that you can give refunds on and, we, you know, stuff like this, there's no rules. Well, people will be bringing down fucking nuclear waste, whipping, ripping people, <laughs> stabbing each other, killing each other. You don't want a free market. That's lunacy, right? And these guys are more crazily utopian than the, than the craziest communist you'll ever meet. They're awesome. <laughs> Right? They have no place. They, they have nothing to do with anarchism. Anarchism, it says that basically all that we need to live free lives is administration. Mm -hmm. That's all you need is, is a level of organization. It means that we we've made achievements as a species. We've moved past many mm -hmm. forms of oppression. Right. And we continue to do so. We have to move past uh, modern anarchism uh, of the past century and a half really fundamentally outside of the areas i've talked about environment feminism so forth really fundamentally takes issue with and tries to say we've got to move past the state and capitalism capitalism i think we've highlighted what the problems with that are if you don't know you know you know uh, oh, i don't know <laughs> i don't think they'd be but, listening to this podcast if that's yeah but the state is an interesting one because a lot of socialists yeah. Left wingers would like to take control of the state. They say, "Okay, look, 
That's certainly been my philosophy. Yeah, that that's what you want to do to make it more democratic so that we can keep the institutions because the state, you know, that's how the world is run is by states. But yeah, so, so what's your response to that, Tom? By states, but that's not the world that we want to live in. And it's also, by the way, not fit for the 21st century. But I don't know, is it? Because that's my question, though. It's like, just because this has been weaponized by the ruling classes doesn't mean that it has to be done away with altogether. Which I'm sure is the common question you get asked. <laughs> It's a super common question. So here's yeah. the thing. If you look at the welfare state, that is not the state. The st those are concessions won from the state, and I absolutely support them. I believe we should have Dole or university based income or, or any concessions we can get from the state, uh, healthcare, yeah. education, so forth, roads, right? But that's not what you need to have a state. So here's the important thing. Let's define the state before we talk about it. The state is the police, the army, uh, and yeah, the, the leadership of, violence, of that state. That's what they yeah. Have, yeah, yeah. Or you know, liberals would say uh, they they have uh, the the right to the they have the consent to coerce people, right? Like you vote every five years, so you consent to them locking you up and beating you up if they want to, or executing you. You know, right? Um, now, I don't. I don't consent to that. I don't think ticking a box every five years is me giving my consent. I don't think me not meaningfully being involved in how the society I live in is run is me giving my consent to that violence. But also, and obviously, most of us don't see that violence in our day to day lives. I mean, do anything where you're like, for instance, against a war or against weapons or against coal power or something like that. You'll see the violence in the state. Mm -hmm. I have. I've seen my friends, you know, raped essentially by undercover police right mm -hmm. uh, who infiltrated our movement because we were against uh, invading Iraq and because we were against the destruction of the planet and nothing more we'd never committed a criminal act but dozens of secret police infiltrated our movement slept with comrades mm -hmm. slept with people that we knew uh, started families with them Jeez. you know and that's that's a minor in comparison to say what african-american movements have had or or like go to a place where the state is a lot more nakedly oppressive and you'll see what it will do to maintain power ultimately yes i believe we can win concessions yes i'd support someone like bernie sanders or jeremy corbyn because it will create a bit of space i want i want material wins for us now i want a better world now but we can't see it as a vehicle for change and we know that every experiment with the state whether it's been a leninist insurrectionary re revolution or social democratic control has ultimately ended up in failure it's created certain amounts of material equality a certain amount by taking away people's freedom um and, and by oppressing them and you know in the case of britain for instance the welfare state in this country was created off the back of the empire of the back of brown and black mm -hmm. blood, yeah. right? so there is no the state has not created equality for us uh, and also it never gave us democratic control over those things it still concentrated power in the hands of the elite and it could be taken away at any point it is something that's used to discipline us and by the way every time it gives us one of those things like education it also says we're going to educate you, but we're going to teach you the history of why your country's great and everyone else is shit. <laughs> and we're going to teach you only the skills you need to be a good worker, not to be a successful human being, not to be a human being that has skills like health care, like how to buy a house or run a business or anything that would give you personal economic freedom. No, we'll teach you to read and write and do maths because I need literate people in my workplace. Right. That's yeah. that's what we we'll do. We we'll create work, roads 
and train links, but only insofar as it helps business, not rural communities that need to get from one place to the next, right? So everything the state creates is caveated with the need to fulfill the needs of the, the elite. And as such, it's not the vehicle for change. And here's the final reason why it's not the vehicle for change. If it ever was, those experiments were in the 20th century. But ultimately, Marx said this, and I think anyone who's got half a brain recognizes it. You can't have socialism in one country. It can't happen. Yeah, yeah, the, the oppression from outside and from within that comes in on it turns it into a heavily policed, militarized state has to happen. So you have to have a global revolution and you have to have it specifically now in the era of hyper globalization where Amazon is beyond Amazon is beyond being uh, controlled by any one state. You've seen how individual states within the United States compete in a race to the bottom to attract Amazon to its state. Even though it has no effect. They do it for all businesses, though, to be fair, but not just Amazon. But yeah, Amazon's the most recent, you know. Yeah, well, global capitalism it is truly global now in a way that it, it never was, uh, even at the height of, say, the, you know, the, the British, first British Empire and stuff. It, and its power knows no borders, money knows no borders, and control of those organisations cannot be done by a state. It cannot even be done by a super state like the EU or China. They, these organisations are beyond the control of single states. Ultimately, we're going to have to work out how to move beyond the state, both geographically, but also as a violent institution. And that's why... By, way of, being... by way of a kind of a long-winded conclusion, what would you suggest? What would I suggest? I suggest we need a global working class movement, a workers' movement of trade unions. They've always been a vehicle for working class emancipation. They've also been conservative in many ways and problematic, but they build economic power. So I say if you're if you're someone who is uh, someone who goes to work, who's employed, then join a union, get active in that and make sure it's international and outward looking. And they are very outward looking, actually. They do organize across the world. And if you're a creator like myself, then found a cooperative or join a cooperative, a cooperative, because both of these things are democratic institutions that get back economic power and workers movements we just seen in india a 250 million person Mm -hmm. general strike okay 250 million people could you imagine just 250 million people jumping up and down together at the same time 250 million plus also if that's not for you join in single issue campaigns and things like that and that will help you learn how to create change in those ways but those two key institutions, co-ops and unions, that's what will get us to where we need to get to, ultimately. Like you're saying, it is true. It's just like you, you do you do change through the process. Like it's nothing, and it happens through the work. And I think that's also, you know, something that came out of the film was that it was about keeping people complacent with the way things are and just allowing you to feel like your life is improving to feel better which is why you have to have things to fill it whether it be clothes or gadgets or drugs any sort of sort of self-medication to distract you from the fact that nothing has actually changed but it's important that you can feel like it has so yeah that's the only real solution right get active get work collectively with other people and that's yeah and and make change yeah make real change i think that's all for us uh that's all we have time for um, for this episode, thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on uh, Twitter at MyDialorama and refer to the intro for all the various useful links. Have a good week.